Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Helena. And I'm Alex. For our last episode of the season, we talked to Rosa Santo Martino, a space microbiologist in the School of Physics and Astronomy. Rosa is one of the lead scientists on the BioRock and BioAsteroid experiments, in which rock samples took a space holiday on board the International Space Station and were bathed in a microbial bath to see whether different microbes were able to break down the rocks under various gravity conditions. She told us all about the difficulties of planning a space experiment, how she fell in love with astrobiology, and why microbes might just be the solution to all our problems. So hold on to your seats for this final out-of-this-world episode. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by GrinoBio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. So first of all, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> That's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is uh, Rosa Santo Martino, and I am a postdoctoral researcher in space microbiology and microbial astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. I started me working here at the University of Edinburgh in 2018. It was actually three my third anniversary. Actually, no, today is exactly three years that I worked on the University of Edinburgh. I, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and it's been ex- three exciting years. So I work in Charles Cockell Group uh, in the School of Physics and Astronomy, and we are an astrobiology group. It's a large group. I think we are 10 or 15, depending on, on how many students we have. Uh, at the moment, I think we are around 10. And we study large variety of different things related to astrobiology. Me, in particular, I study uh, space microbiology, which is basically experiment, microbiology experiment applied to space science. I was lucky enough to uh, lead, (laughs) together with um, uh, my supervisor, Professor Coquette, two space experiments so far, which mean two experiments that have been performed on board the International Space Station. Uh, One is called BioRock, and the other one is called BioAsteroid. BioRock was the first one, and it was the one that I was hired for, basically. And uh, it was launched on board the International Space Station in 2019, summer 2019. And BioAsteroid was launched in uh, December 2020, so it is more recent. It is still ongoing because, well, I don't want to bore you with too many details, but basically, um, while BioRock was done all together, the, um, the space samples and the ground control samples have been run all together. For BioAsteroid, we first did the, the space experiment on board the ISS and we, now we are performing the, the ground controls. So what was the focus of these projects? Like what were you actually looking for? So uh, both the experiments had the um, final aim to study micro-mineral interactions uh, under different gravity conditions. So the interaction between microorganisms and rocks is important for a large number of applications which include rock weathering, salt formation, bioremediation, but also um, biomining. Biomining is basically an industrial process in which they use microorganisms to extract useful elements from um, rock ores and mine waste. So all these processes are largely used here on Earth, but they could also be quite uh, important to use them in space, because in fact there is a large interest in understanding if they can be exploited in space. 
in order to improve the success of uh, human space exploration and the formation of uh, extraterrestrial settlement. Um, however, the conditions that are present in space are quite different from those that are present on Earth. So before understanding if we can apply these processes in, in space, we first need to understand if this is feasible under space conditions. So with BioRock and BioAsteroid, basically we wanted to learn how space conditions and particularly um, gravity, influences the microbial-mineral interactions and consequently their application to space. <laughs> I hope this is quite... <laughs> Sorry, it's a little complicated. That's all right. It's really interesting. Um, I, this, is pro- this is probably a stupid question, but we can... Because we can simulate zero gravity on Earth. So why did this need to be done on the International Space Station? No, it is not a stupid question at all. It is a very important question. Uh, So, yes, we can simulate microgravity uh, on Earth, but also we can perform some real microgravity experiments on Earth. However, in the first case, the case of the simulation, the fact is that with microorganisms, they have kind of a weird behavior in, in microgravity in the sense that for bigger organisms, such as plants, humans, animals, and so on, the effects of microgravity are more uh, are direct, basically. While for microorganisms, the, they are so small often that um, the effects of microgravity are in, in, indirect and non-direct. So simulation are not necessarily the best option. It's a little complicated to explain in simple terms. The simulation of microgravity from the perspective of microbes is not... Is a simulation, so it, it, it's not. It doesn't perfectly simulate the condition that the cell will have, the microbial cell will have in space. This was one reason to go into real microgravity. Then uh, you, as I say, you can actually have real um, microgravity experiments on Earth using the vomit comet. I don't know if you ever heard about the vomit comet, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> or uh, drop towers. Uh, but these are all facilities that um, in which microgravity is happens in seconds, like 20 seconds or so, 30 seconds, something like that. While in our experiment, we needed a longer time period. We did it for three weeks. So for these reasons, the best option was to go into in space. N- not the easiest option, but the best. <laughs> and also the, the coolest, to be honest, though, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And on the topic of the cool part, what was it like to actually go to NASA and watch your project launch? Oh, that was amazing. Really, like, (laughs) it was amazing. It has been, I think, one of the most exciting things I've ever done so far (laughs) in my life. Um, Because while for all the experiments, uh, uh, all experiments require a high dose of preparation, of course, and um, correct choice of the controls, the correct choice of the design, the experimental design, etc., and dealing with the space experiment takes these aspects to the next level because you cannot easily re- repeat the experiment, right? So um, these are very rare occasions. So uh, you spend a large amount of, of time of your work basically in, in preparation of the experiment and also for the experiment itself, which means you also have to prepare to, to, to integrate, for instance, the samples into the other. So it needs a lot of, uh, of preparation. It is one chance normally. So um, 
I still remember like the, the, the exciting moments when uh, after uh, preparing all the samples for the launch, we delivered them to the um, International Space Station, what was the name? International Space Station Processing Facility, which is basically the people that prepare all the samples to put them on the rocket for the launch. And so in that moment, actually, we have picture of us like uh, really delivering these, these uh, samples very in a very <laughs> exciting moment. <laughs> and um, then uh, the rocket, the moment of the rocket launch was also very, very adrenalinic. And um, I, I remember that when I was looking at the rocket uh, disappearing in the sky, I was thinking, I was like talking to my samples and say, hey, little samples, behave, <laughs> come back soon. <laughs> Uh, safely, etc. But also, it was also terrifying, actually, because uh, the other thought that was in my head, it was, it was like, oh my god, I hope I, I didn't make any mistake because <laughs> it was it. Okay. But then eventually, when the launch was occurred, it was like, okay, it's too late now. If there was any mistake, <laughs> luckily everything was okay. So apparently, I didn't make any mistake, or or uh, yeah, I think I didn't make any mistake. Hopefully, uh, and then. <laughs> No, no one else did. But yeah, it, it's such an exciting thing. This happened for Bioroc, but for BioAsteroid, this didn't happen because uh, it, we were in the full pandemic moment. So uh, it was still exciting, of course, because I could um, look the rocket launch um, from, from the NASA website, but it is less adrenalinic, you know, <laughs> when you are there and you assemble things together. It's NASA in Florida. Really exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, when I was reading about this, I was just like, that must be so stressful because I remember from when I was in a lab, like I would panic on tiny everyday experiments and tell them to behave. So I, don't, <laughs> I can't imagine like that when it's what your one chance of it going to space. That's yeah, that's pretty. You prepare a lot, and I have to say, from this point of view, I really. So you have you also make a lot of tests. I think that this really make us prepare so well for the launch because when we were there, of course, you had these things, okay, this is real, this is the real space experiment, but, but still you have gone through a process in which you, you really prepare for that. And I, I really have to, to praise European Space Agency from this point of view because you can really see how, okay, maybe it was the first time for you, but not for them. So they are really prepared <laughs> and make you prepare. <laughs> What were the things that you wanted to learn from each of these experiments? And what did you find out? Yeah, so BioRock and BioAsteroid are quite similar, but there are some differences. Like for BioRock, we use three different bacteria and we use a terrestrial rock, which is the basalt rock. Because basalt is, is a good analog for Martian and lunar rocks, basically. We wanted to understand how bacteria specifically interacted with the rocks in microgravity, but also on Martian gravity. We had a simulation of Martian gravity on board the International Space Station, and we also had a simulation of terrestrial gravity again on board, because that was a good control for real terrestrial gravity, basically. When you perform a space experiment, you have a lot of limitation, particularly for, for space. So you cannot do, often you have to, to limit the things, the type of thing that you want to do. So the possibility of trying these three different microgravity, sorry, gravity conditions is uh, was was excellent because now we had the kind of a clearer understanding of what happened. And what did we discover is that from the point of view of bacterial growth, it doesn't matter, <laughs> in the sense that at least for three weeks, 
the experiment was designed in a way in which we could not check the bacterial growth time after time. We only knew what happens after the, the last day. And what did we discover is that after three weeks, basically, they grew exactly the same, regardless of the gravity condition. This is actually very good news from the point of view of biotechnological applications, because it means that when you perform any biotechnology, normally it takes longer than a few, few hours to perform them. So the fact that after three weeks, they all reach the final cell concentration means that they probably won't have, that the gravity probably doesn't have a, a negative effect on biotechnologies. So this is a good point. Then we also focused more specifically on um, biomining. Biomining is the industrial process of using microorganisms to extract useful metals and elements from rocks and mine waste, mine ores, and so on. We discovered that one out of the three bacteria was able to extract uh, uh, the so-called rare earth elements, which is a very good news because uh, they are widely used in uh, all electronic devices. Even the simplest electronic device has a rare earth element in all the gravity conditions. So again, it looks like biomining is, is uh, going to be feasible, at least from, of course, there are a lot of scaling up things that you have to, to think about if you really want to do that from an in space industrial point of view. But as a principle, we basically demonstrated for the first time that this is possible. And the two organisms out of three were able to extract vanadium. And now we are focusing on also on other, other um, elements. The main discovery that we made with Biorock particularly is that uh, we, we provided the first demonstration of um, biomining on a space station. <laughs> it's quite cool to say. That's amazing. And because Biorock was successful, we decided to go on and prepare the second experiment, which is, again, bioasteroid. Bioasteroid, as the name suggests, uses real asteroidal material because in the world of space science and space applications there is an interest in understanding if you can biomine meteorites and asteroids because they often have a lot of rich elements like gold well not gold actually platinum um, yeah a lot of elements that are quite uh, rich for us and so what happens is that we decided to go on with the next experiment and we, this time we uh, biomine the real asteroidal material. More specifically, it is an alchondrite. And we use one of the three microorganisms that we use for Biorock. But this time we also use another type of microorganism. Uh, we say that with Biorock, we use bacteria. All three samples were bacteria. This time we use a bacteria and a fungus. Well, because it is quite interesting from my point of view. I am a microbiologist, so <laughs> understanding if we can use another type of microorganism to do that, it, it is quite a good question. We don't know the results yet because, again, it's still ongoing, but I hope I can give you results soon. So are there lots of different microorganisms that can harvest precious metals like this? And how did you narrow down your options to these three bacteria? Yeah, so we didn't use the bacteria that are commonly used on Earth biomining because they are microorganisms which require, uh, for instance, high acidity or high temperatures, all the ki this kind of things. So we decided to go for other type of microorganisms, particularly the three microorganisms that we use, they all have demonstrated capacity to interact with the rock. But apart from this, we also needed to take other things into account because it was a space experiment. So for instance, we decided to use microorganisms that were able to resist the desiccation 
because we sent the samples on the International Space Station desiccated on the rock samples. So this is another thing that maybe if you have an, a normal biomining experiment, you won't need to, to address as an issue, but with this type of experiment you have. And another thing that we decided to do is to select three microorganisms that were safe for the crew. Again, when you have a space experiment, there are a lot of other parameters that you have to take into account, which makes them quite interesting, I think. Are there a lot that we could use in space or is there a limited range of bacteria or, or fungi that we could use if we were to go into space biomining? No, I really think it, there is probably a wide variety of microorganisms that you can use, not just for space biomining, but indeed for any application or any research that you want to do. It really depends on the application that you want to do. And also, to be honest, also it depends on the, the expertise of your laboratory. So in uh, Bioroc, it was a collaboration between uh, three science laboratories, which was our, that was the leading one. But then there was also uh, a laboratory in uh, the German Neurospace Center, or also called DLR, and then another one in the SEK Center in Belgium. And they were all, we were all expertise in different, in different microorganisms. So eventually we selected these three because to our um, knowledge and for our type of application, it was the best choices. It doesn't mean that, it's, that they are the only choices. And indeed, the demonstration is that for bioasteroid, we selected other and other microorganisms. So it means that if we dig, you will find others. Would you like to have a part three to the bio something project timeline or oh, yeah, I would are like you to. happy after bioasteroid? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's such an exciting thing to do. Um, I hope that uh, now that we are into this direction, my group and I, we can do more and more experiments. So yes, definitely, I would like to do something ag again. I would like to lead my own experiment in the future. I don't know if this will ever happen. Yeah, yeah, but definitely I would like to have another project or two or three or four. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have at least the trilogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be really cool to have all, the whole career based on space a space experiment, but the reality is that it's not viable because um, they are so rare that if you have to base all your funding and your grant applications on these, you're not going to, to get any grant applications. <laughs> it's good to have the opportunities though. Are there any questions or is there anything that you personally would really like to know about what microbes do in space? Yes. <laughs> so I am moving. <laughs> well, me in particular, starting with uh, three years ago, I got more and more interested into the field of making space exploration as sustainable as possible. And not to say that it's not sustainable, but to improve this. And I think actually the, the objectives that the space agencies had so far is really going toward this direction. Because when you go in space, it's already a truth for the space station, for instance. Uh, you need to recycle as much as possible because you have a limited number of resources that you can use. So it is already, it's a natural, naturally going towards sustainability and a circular economy concept, etc. So this is something that I really want to explore because I really think that microorganism could be the key to do this in a sustainable way. So this is something that I'm really interested in doing. And actually, I'm starting, I will start shortly finger crossed, a project uh, toward in this direction. From another point of view that is uh, may maybe almost a philosophic one, I think that the fact that microorganisms can, some microorganisms, 
really like extreme environments and extreme conditions or can resist to extreme conditions, these are called extremophiles or extremotolerant microorganisms, really push us in understanding the boundaries of life. Because you really, you know, the more we discover extremophiles or extreme tolerant microorganisms, the more we understand that what we thought it was the extreme, let's say the highest temperatures in which life can exist, it was not actually the, the extreme, the, the, the highest temperature, there is a higher level. So the more we study this, the more we discover, we push toward the boundaries of life. And I think this is another aspect of astrobiology in general, which is quite interesting. When I started with BioRock and BioAsteroids, I was more focusing into biomining, but also bioleaching, which is basically, um, biomining is I would say the, they are used as synonyms, but in my view, bioleaching is like the molecular and chemical mechanisms, while biomining is when you use this for industrial application, but it, they are really used as synonyms. So I was focusing more on this. Then, because this is the same concept, the same chemical reaction are used also in, a, in a, the process of bioremediation. Basically, it's the use of microorganisms to eliminate pollutants from soils, from several environments. So it is similar, so I got more interested into that and more interested into the, the mechanisms of soil formation. And so by starting with bioremediation, I got interested into waste recycling and the concept of in-situ resource utilization, which is applied to space exploration. It is basically the concept of using the resources in the place in which we are going to settle in space rather than relying from a constant resupply from Earth, because the farthest we will go from Earth, the less this becomes viable. I am now focusing more into waste recycling in space and, uh, and generally um, biomanufacturing in space. So this is something, it's, it's still related, it's, it's all related to be honest, but um, yeah, it's moving, moving toward that other direction, I think. In terms of using bacteria for recycling, things like that, how applicable is what you're learning in space and that kind of research to Earth? Like, could we use those things to inform how we, say, manage waste on Earth, for example? Thank you, actually, for this question, because this is something that I always want to say and I always forget to say. You know, in space science in general, sometimes we ask, people ask why space science matters, why space exploration matters. Uh, the reality is that the majority of the, ad the technological advancement that we, not the majority, but some technological advancement that we have so far on Earth came from space science applications because uh, for instance, the GPS, this is just a quick example, because since space is such, such a complex environment, the technologies to go to space and to do space exploration requires the highest level of cutting-edge science and technologies. But once you have these technologies, they are actually available for uses on Earth. And this is what happens with the majority of space technologies that I can think about. Again, there is the GPS, there is also a lot of technologies to help the astronauts for you know that when astronauts go to space, staying in space for a long time, they lose muscles and, and uh, bone tissues. And so they developed several um, technologies to, to help them with that. And now some of these technologies are available for diseases. So there is a lot of application toward this. For instance, there was an experiment that was performed in the 90s on a shuttle mission. They wanted to understand the importance of, importance of the ozone layer. And they use a bacteria which is called Bacillus subtilis, which is widely used on, um, in space experiments. And uh, because they know that Bacillus subtilis is very resistant to a higher dose of, uh, high dose of uh, radiations. 
So they use these microorganisms. They basically put them on a, on a surface and they launch them in space with the shuttle mission and they expose it to solar radiation toward a layer that was basically, it was an optical filtering of different thickness that had the aim to simulate different ozone layer thickness. And uh, with this experiment, they discovered the importance of the ozone layer because they discovered that the, the, the thinner it gets, the more the, the doses of radiation became dangerous. But they also discovered what happens to, not discovered, but they had some insight in, on what happens on early Earth in which the ozone layer didn't form yet. So my hope is that by understanding how to improve as much as possible the recycling and the self-sustaining extraterrestrial settlement, we can also understand how to apply this on Earth. So I believe you're also involved in contributing for a white paper for recommendations on how we act in space. What does that involve and what is a white paper? So a white paper is basically, I would say, kind of a, a concept paper. When they request you to do a white paper, they call some experts in a certain field and uh, they ask to this expert to inform government or, or um, industries or yeah, company leaders, etc., to uh, on how to address a, a topic in particular. So yeah, I'm being involved in some white papers which are on biomining and in situ research utilization. I'm also part now of the Italian, these are from NASA, but they are also, I'm also being involved with the, the Italian Space Agency. I, I am Italian, I don't know if you're from my accent. Um, and we are working on, on uh, basically how to inform the space agencies on which are the next step for, in my field, uh, in space microbiology in general. So what are, which, which is the state of art? what we think is going to be the next goal to address and why this is important, which are the possible applications to space, but also on Earth. I honestly really like doing white paper. I'm not an expert because I started, I, I would say, one year ago doing that. But I really like that and I enjoy that because I feel that by doing that, basically, you really have the opportunity and also the responsibility to inform governments, institutions, and so on, so on, on on some topics that matter to you and why they should matter for, for them as well. Why also, why should you, as a government, want to fund them? So yeah, you have a power in that moment, but you also have a, a high responsibility that I really feel and I, I really enjoy doing that, but I feel the responsibility. And is it like a collaborative experience? Do you talk and discuss it with the other experts that they've called on? Yes, so it depends, of course, on how it is organized. But basically, you, you meet with other experts in the field. You kind of really brainstorm in the beginning and you get your own views and you get your own expertise on the topic. So you also learn a lot on your own topic. I, I really like these things of brainstorming. And I think it really helps me also to have new ideas for my own project. I'm totally not qualified, but I'd absolutely love to sit in one of those meetings. That sounds absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Do you have any dreams to send anything bigger than a microorganism into space, like yourself? Or... Uh, no. <laughs> well, no, honestly, you know, European Space Agency opened the applications for new astronauts. And no, I don't want to apply for that. I'm too scared <laughs> to go in space. Although it would be, I think in the future, if, if in the future we'll become kind of a... Um, 
routine things to do like oh yeah i'm going to space whatever then like like it is now going it's a long weekend yeah exactly, <laughs> like a vacation <laughs> i would be really interested in into going into trying this experience but no 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 i don't want to be an astronaut i think it's too stressful and also i don't have you don't see my glasses but i'm not a very good side so <laughs> they will cut me off immediately so <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to become an astronaut when I was a child. So <laughs> then I changed my mind. How did you go from astronaut to astro-scientist? <laughs> well, um, when I was a child, I wanted to become an astronaut. And this is actually how I got really interested in, into space science. Actually, until I was a teenager, I always wanted to do uh, astrophysics and be to become an astronaut in the future, blah, blah, blah. But then um, when I was in high school... I uh, I started classes in biology and I, I loved biology, honestly. I, I loved biology more than I loved uh, um, astrophysics. So basically for, for bachelor, master and PhD, I always did uh, biotechnology and molecular biology. And then after my PhD, I decided, of course, I was already aware of, of uh, astrobiology field because, because of my passion towards space science. And it was kind of a putting the two my two passions together astrobiology sorry um uh, astrophysics and space science and, and biology um but i never give it a chance until i finish my phd when you finish your phd i think is a moment in which a lot of people has a kind of crisis because oh what i want to do in the future and uh, at that point i decided to give it a chance and uh, I was lucky, I succeeded basically. And so <laughs> this is how I got involved. Because to me, when I finished my PhD, I thought, is it too late to try and give, give it a chance to this passion of mine, which is astrobiology, uh, so that I can do the two things together? Is it, well, I, I will just try. So I applied to a position here in Edinburgh and, uh, and, and I got it. And so <laughs> that's, um, that's how I got here, basically. <laughs> Sounds like a How I Met Your Mother, but in uh, astrobiology version. <laughs> <laughs> I think your story definitely had a better ending, though. <laughs> yeah, I, so far, then you never know. <laughs> That's true. But no spoiler, maybe someone didn't watch How I Met Your Mother yet, I don't know. <laughs> so what are the best and worst parts of uh, doing a postdoc in astrobiology? Hmm. Um, maybe more than in astrobiology I would say if, if I can switch a little bit your question like the best and worst parts of being a researcher in general of being a researcher I think the best thing is that you it, you, you always do something new so you can always kind of follow your, your, your passions a little bit like oh this is so interesting I want to study this you never get bored basically you always have these uh, opportunities um, the bad part of, of this part, type of job is that then you crash into reality <laughs> and the truth is that <laughs> you have to find funding all the time and it's kind of um, a, a job that for a long time doesn't give you a lot of stability and this is unfortunate because it, I mean it is part of of the game because um, because it gives you always you have to 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 I don't know, always study, always um, update your knowledge. And, and this is good. And But from another point of view, you, you never have a stable position. So uh, it can become tiring, I think. 
at a certain point of your life. It is maybe good when you are uh, very young, but then at some point it's like, yes, but I, I want to settle a little bit. And uh, yeah, so it's good and bad. And from the point of view astrobiology, I really don't know because I think maybe from the point of astrobiology, space microbiology, etc. the best part is that you manage to do something that is, which is extremely cool. So you always have this feeling that what you do matters a lot because people get interested into that. The worst part is that maybe maybe astrobiology sometimes is a little misunderstood a little bit sometimes because it's not just yes of course a part of astrobiology learn about try to understand if there is life on other planet if life is possible um, in space etc but then these can become quite easy quite easily um, misunderstood for sci-fi stuff <laughs> this is maybe maybe just uh, while i can come i can tell you it, it is real science <laughs> is there um that I, I was just thinking is there like a piece of science that you see in a lot of sci-fi movies or a misconception that really frustrates you about astrobiology or about uh, space science in general mm. so to me the 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 thing that i don't quite understand is why all the so first, why people are always afraid of aliens, but that's just, I don't know, maybe a philosophical question. And then why do they assume that they will have two arms and two legs, like humanoids? And maybe the third would be, why don't they expect them to be microorganisms? Because I think <laughs> if we find something on Mars, let's say, or, or if anything ever was present on Mars, it's probably the most obvious thing would have been microorganisms <laughs> it's not because I'm a, I'm a microbiologist i swear it's because <laughs> they can survive to some so many harsh environment that i will well we astrobiologists and all people in the, in the field will search for microorganisms i think as first attempt but then in sci-fi movies they always think about these it doesn't mean that they may that biggest alien organisms cannot be possible i have no idea honestly it's just that to me i will immediately think about microorganisms not big hominid people with big head and i don't know <laughs> it just doesn't sound very likely but yeah and the fact that astronauts in space if they remove their element they don't explode <laughs> <laughs> i was just going to ask if you had a favorite sci-fi movie oh so I really like Arrival, <laughs> not because I have no idea how accurate it is. To me, the perspective that was really fascinating was actually the perspective of the language. I don't know if you've ever seen that. There was the physicist, I think, in the team. And then the other one was a, an expert in language, something like that. And to me, it's not an obvious choice when you have a sci-fi movie. From that perspective, it was novel to me. I, I like that. Yeah. And also Star Wars. but. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show. Yeah, it's been really great talking to you. <laughs> uh, no, thank you so much for the invitation. It was my pleasure. So thank you actually again for inviting me to this. <laughs> the only thing that I would like to add is regarding outreach. Since I started this, this position here, I had the opportunity to do a lot of public outreach. And at the beginning, to me, it was just something like, okay, let's try. I've never done that. But now that I've done many, I had many occasions to do that, I have to say this is one of my favorite things to do. But when I have the occasion to talk to people about 
what I do and more in particular astrobiology, etc. I think so you have the opportunity to engage them into into science basically. And also astrobiology in particular is quite interdisciplinary. So by you use this hook basically and then you can teach them things related to space science, to, to biology, to, to geology, to I don't know, exoplanets, to, to a different variety of uh, scientific topics. So I think it's, it's very good from this point of view. And one thing that I really love is when people make me questions that makes me uncomfortable. And they think they are silly questions, but they are really not. Because when you talk with the people that are in your field, you kind of discard the, the obvious question, the basic question, and then you kind of forgot about them. <laughs> And you forgot the basis. So when they, when people ask you things that you never thought about that because you are too, too focused into what you're doing, that's actually, that helps you widening your mind. And I hope that in reverse, like doing public outreach can really inspire the younger generation. I thought it was a good question, so I just wanted to mention it. Thanks to Rosa for coming on the show. We loved hearing about how she loves to study things in space, but definitely from the Earth. I think we can all agree you should always ask a space microbiologist what their favourite sci-fi film is. If you have a favourite real or fake science fiction film story, please do share it with us. You can find Rosa on Twitter as at Rosa Rosa. We'll link it in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at UCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can drop us an email at uci.podcast at gmail.com, and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at uci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by me, Helena Konu, and my partner in crime, Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by USAI Chief Editor Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. This was the last episode of the season, and for Tom and I, our last episode as hosts. It has been an absolutely wild ride, and we've both learned so much from our first miniseries, looking into the scientists and students taking the fight to coronavirus, to our wonderful, wonderful chat with the sourdough librarian himself. I had so much fun making these episodes, and so much fun hosting them with Tom. And to be honest, I think we could have just chatted for sourdough about two hours straight, but it was amazing to know that you guys are out there. So thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you very, very much for supporting us and listening to this podcast. We're going to hand over to our two amazing new hosts, Alex Bailey and Hannah Muir, who will introduce themselves now. I've loved learning from Tom and Helena how they've built the podcast from the inside out during my time as podcast manager this past season. I'm so excited to put this all into practice for our upcoming summer season. Hi, I'm Hannah, and I'm excited to continue where Tom and Helena left off. To kick off our first season starting in August, Alex and I will be delving into the science of food and drink by interviewing some of Edinburgh's finest culinary scientists. I hope you'll continue to join us. So, for the last time, I'm Tom. And I'm Helena. Thank you for listening, and remember... Keep it science.